0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight we're going to be breaking up our exposition a little bit. We're looking at Genesis 22. An Old Testament passage, one of my favorites, and we're going to be reading the first 19 verses. So Genesis 22, you'll find it on page 16 of the Pew Bible, and we'll read verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, at long last, against all odds, humanly speaking, the promised heir was born. Abraham's wife Sarah had said God has made me laughter everyone who hears will laugh over me and for that reason he was named Isaac which signifies laughter all hopes now were set on him as the channel through whom God would fulfill his promise and Abraham took great delight in seeing his son grow steadily into manhood it was a time of prosperity So much so that King Abimelech sought a covenant with Abraham because he recognized God's blessing on his life. But in time, the patriarch was confronted with the supreme test of his faith. The very gift of a son, which had produced such joy and confirmed such hope, must now be surrendered and sacrificed in obedience to God. In these verses, we encounter, I think, a gripping story that foreshadows Christ. It is theologically and redemptively deep as the plan of God continues to unfold. And in our brief consideration, we can only begin to appreciate its richness. It says, after these things, which refers, of course, to the many days that he spent in the land of the Philistines, according to chapter 21. And Abraham's son is a young man by this point, probably in his mid to late teens, He's old enough, at least, to carry the wood that's necessary for his sacrifice. And notice how Moses says expressly that God tested Abraham. How else is faith to be proved genuine? It has to be tested. And such a test always involves challenge and difficulty and hardship In Deuteronomy 8, this is what it says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. So by this test, God would reveal the nature of Abraham's faith and expose the condition of his heart. Abraham was about to experience the most difficult trial of his life. And it was when he was most mature. Because you see, God only gives us what we can handle. He never gives us a test that's too much for us. And we shouldn't be surprised that the episode begins with a divine summons. God says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Because a lifetime of walking with God had developed in him an attentiveness to God's word, as it should with us. We know a test is difficult, but who would have imagined what God was going to require of this ancient believer? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I don't think I have to remind you that a burnt offering involved killing, cutting, and burning the victim. It was sacrificed as an atonement for sins and a self-surrender to God because the wages of sin are death. And justice demands that sinners die. But God is willing to accept a substitute. And so he commanded birds and sheep and goats and bulls to be sacrificed over and over again. And among the pagans, human sacrifice was common. But who ever heard of human sacrifice among the godly? Never had God required human sacrifice in the history of the world. So here we find this amazing command, a living parable of what would happen in the fullness of time. As Peter puts it, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And it's interesting to me that there is this fourfold description of the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And with those four descriptors, the entire drama of Abraham's cherished son is summed up. It recalls the promise of the heir, the hardship of 25 years of waiting, the miracle of the fulfillment, and the laughter with joy when he was born. And their are descriptions that emphasize the magnitude of what God was demanding. As one commentator put it, the very terms in which God makes known his will are expressly chosen to touch every fiber of his heart. To sacrifice Isaac was to forfeit a great treasure and to extinguish all hope of the fulfillment to come in the the future. If Jesus didn't come through Isaac's line, Jesus would not come at all. To be a blessing to all nations, Isaac had to live so that he could father his own child. So the text makes clear that Abraham dearly loved his remaining son. The patriarch is not some callous Semite influenced by pagan rituals. He already has forsaken everything that was near and dear to him when he left Ur of the Chaldeans. He had already expelled Ishmael, his firstborn son, for whom he had deep affection. And was he now expected to sacrifice the only one he had left, the one whom he loved, The one on whom he had based his hope. Yes. He must sacrifice him on whom all of his eschatological hopes rested. And the silence between verses two and three is almost deafening. It was the dark night of the soul for Abraham. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? How could he even sleep? But whatever the state of his mind, Abraham did as he was told without delay. It says he rose early, he saddled his donkey, he took two young men, and he took his son Isaac. And his prompt obedience in this difficult task is proof of his faith in God. Through the years, Abraham had learned to trust the Almighty, who was able to do the impossible. That's a hard lesson to learn. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So if necessary, the Lord could resurrect Isaac to fulfill the covenant promises. And as a man of faith and action, Abraham did everything that was necessary for the task. He rose early. He saddled the donkey. He took his men. He cut the wood. He laid it on Isaac. He took the fire. And as he laid that wood on his son... He gave the world a sign of what God himself would do with his own son. Do you remember John 19, 17? Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Well, after three days, Abraham and his three men drew near to the place of which God spoke. Leaving his servants and donkey behind, Abraham and Isaac said they would go it alone in verse 6. And is that not an Old Testament picture of Messiah's lonely walk as he carried his cross? But notice how Abraham describes to the servant what would soon transpire. Stay here with the donkey, he said. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He calls it worship. What a wonderful, implicit affirmation of his faith in Yahweh. We will come again, he said. God will overrule the sacrifice, and he'll raise the dead if he has to. And I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a more touching scene in the entire Bible as those two men ascended that mountain. Isaac says to his father Abraham, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. And he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Think of the curiosity of the son. Think of the love of faith. Think of the ambiguity of the father's response. Another commentator put it this way. Isaac, pondering upon the intended sacrifice, begins to wonder where the victim is to be found. We have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Oh, cutting stroke, he says. Can Abraham bear this and yet pretend? It must have been a profound and tender exchange between father and son that followed. It was perhaps one of the most eloquent silences in all of literature as they walked up that mountain together. It was filled with deep sorrow in Abraham's heart because he knew what awaited them. And such a severe test could only happen with regard to what he valued most. What do you value most? Is it something confined to this world? Let's not uh, permit the things of this earth to occupy the throne of our hearts. Don't be surprised if God tests your faith with self-denial and self-sacrifice, with the thing that you might value most. For Isaac, it had been a confusing trek, and yet he trusted and loved his father, and his willing obedience to Abraham's will was impressive. He who wielded the knife and he who would receive the wound walked together, just as Jesus and his father went together in the work of redemption. And upon reaching the destination, they built an altar, arranged the wood, and made everything ready. And then it says that Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And again, the record is silent with regard to their discussion at the altar. I can only imagine what they talked about. But the scene must have been solemn. The Bible says that elderly Abraham bound this young, vigorous son, Isaac. And the explanation for that, to me, is the full cooperation of the son with the father. It points to the voluntary subjection of Jesus as he was led as a lamb to slaughter. Isaac was now fully aware of what was going on. He knew what was coming. And he was a willing sacrifice. And so we read centuries later, That Jesus knelt and prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then came the decisive moment. It was a decisive moment in the great trial of Abraham's faith. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And he did this trusting the one whom he had believed was able to raise the dead. So the father was ready. And the sun was willing, and the watershed moment had arrived, and though Isaac would be mercifully spared, the deed was as good as done. DeWitt Clark says, the offering, so far as the offerer was concerned, had been made. He made up his mind. This was the child of his old age. And God knew that these men would have gone through with it had they not been stopped. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. That's what we read. The heart of his heart, the heir of the promise, which points to the love of God the Father. And Isaac was a dutiful son, willing to be bound and sacrificed, which points to the obedience of Christ the Son. And if anywhere in the Old Testament there is a parallel with Christ, this has to be it. It shows the essence of the Christian life, which is the sacrifice of the self. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, because it's through self-sacrifice that we exhibit the image of the crucified Christ. God didn't require Isaac's life, but he required the entire subjection of his will which is what he requires of you and me. Abraham was not required to kill his son, but he was required to mortify the love for his son on this earth. And all that we love in this world must be subordinate to our love for Christ. Our greatest, our dearest, our most prized possessions need to be subordinate to him. Do we so hold that which is dearest to us on earth, that we would surrender it to the God of heaven? Ask yourself that. What is it? Spouse? Child? Life? Well, the angel of the Lord himself, who would be the supreme sacrifice, called out to Abraham, Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So at the critical moment, the pre-incarnate Christ himself prevented the slaughter. Isaac's limbs were bound, the knife was drawn, he was given over to death, and now he's restored because there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And that ram typified Jesus as our substitute. It was a vivid Old Testament picture of the sacrifice made by the Father who gave the Son, For three days, Abraham saw his son as good as dead, like God. On the third day, he rejoiced like God. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Jesus protected the seed, he guarded the prince, he kept safe the covenant heir, and thus the life of Abraham's son was spared, and the Lord's promise was preserved. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And indeed he will. He knows what we need, and he knows exactly when we need it. He does not forsake his children, ever. He's concerned for our welfare, always. Our God is kind and gracious and merciful and generous, and He loves you. Let's never despair of God's provision, because if He gave His Son, what will He withhold? I think this teaches us that true Christian faith will be tested by the trials of this life. William Taylor says, here is one of the greatest saints subjected to the severest of tests as the last of a series which began when he was called to leave his country and his kindred in the land of the Chaldees. And it was by this means that Abraham's character was gradually formed and ripened. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. So every aspect of a believer's character will be tested in one way or another. God will refine you in the crucible. He'll purify your faith in the furnace of affliction. He knows that if it's genuine, your faith will stand the test and you'll be better for it. And so when we're required to pass through the fire, let's not think that it's some strange thing. God has a purpose. He knows that proven character can be gained in no other way. It was Abraham's obedience that was the proof of his profession of faith. That's why James says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Not that he was justified forgiveness and acceptance, but it justified his faith as genuine. You see, those who would have Abraham's privileges must exhibit Abraham's faith. In humility, he believed and embraced God's promises and commands. And the sincerity of faith is proven by one's willingness to surrender it all. I hope I get there because Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. How else are we to distinguish between presumption and true faith? Let me ask you that. Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. You know, the foolish virgins, they never doubted their profession until it was too late. Salvation depends not on the size, nor the strength, nor the intensity of one's faith. Salvation depends on the finished work of Christ applied by sincere faith. And if there be but a mustard seed of that sincere faith, it embraces a great Christ so that even the weakest of all believers is united by faith to a strong and mighty Jesus. Let's not measure how much faith we have. Let's just see if we have sincere faith. And the story concludes with this emphatic and encouraging statement of the promise. The patriarch's faith was genuine. He trusted in God's promise, and the fruit of his faith was an obedience that he was willing to surrender at all. And because the Spirit was dwelling in his heart, Abraham passed the test. And as a result of that, salvation history would proceed, and the godly line would be preserved. And Abraham's obedience was generously recompensed. Not as if he merited the blessing, but God was glad to bestow it on him. The Lord is debtor to no one. He doesn't owe us anything. As sinners, we forfeited everything but the Lord will provide. He sent His Son, Jesus, to reconcile us to Him. And if you're wondering about the future or whether or not He'll supply your needs, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Our God is ready and willing to reward the faith that His own grace enables. He loves you and He loves me with an everlasting love and he'll never forsake us. So in the words of Isaiah the prophet, behold, this is our God. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this remarkable Old Testament story, which obviously points forward to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for giving him up, We thank you for his willing sacrifice. We thank you for the salvation that you've accomplished and offered so freely to us. Enable us to sing praises with joy and gratitude, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.